Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... The evildoer that is Professor Marty Macri. You know, normally every week you hear me say, if you're a fan of this show, go support us on Patreon and get access to the slides. I got something new to say this time. I think the good old days are over. We're living in a unique time where people are very happy to extinguish voices and ideas that they deem unfit for consumption. And so I personally have gone on Patreon. I've supported a number of people who I listen to, the podcast that I love, and I'm encouraging you to do the same. The only way we can combat this growing force of illiberalism is to support with our dollar bills podcast we enjoy. So that's my plug. I don't know if you've been keeping up with this story, but Marty Macri, professor of surgery at Johns Hopkins University, health policy researcher. He got dinged by Facebook, obviously. Evildoer Marty Macri. You see, what Facebook did was they looked at the sea of Facebook posts. There's total garbage and incorrect things said all over Facebook, but they zoomed in on the greatest offender, Professor Marty Macri, and his Wall Street Journal opinion piece, his opinion article in the Wall Street Journal. What was his transgression? His transgression was Marty predicted by the end of April that we will be achieving herd immunity and that we can relax restrictions. So Facebook took that really seriously. People were tweeting it. People were talking about it. It's Marty's opinion, but they took it seriously. So they took a deep dive. First of all, let me just comment on the article. I'm not particularly interested in the article um, because I don't know the answer. I don't want to weigh in on the article. I'm interested in the process by which Facebook ends up taking a big rubber stamp and smashing it down in this article and putting misleading on it. So that's what I'm interested in, that process. You see, they're not just writing a rebuttal. That's one thing I've heard people say. They're not just writing a rebuttal. They're using the power of an $800 billion company that for many Americans is the only way they consume news to stamp Marty Macri's opinion with the big word on it, misleading that you cannot tweet this article, you cannot Facebook post this article, sorry, without it saying that this article is misleading. They're deciding that for the reader. So how do they do this? Well, I did some digging. I found out that they use a third-party fact-checker website. And on that website, they list articles they fact-checked during COVID and articles they fact-checked prior to COVID. And here's the interesting part. During COVID, the articles that they fact-checked were fact-checked by people who 80% of them were on Twitter. They averaged 42,000 followers with a median of 10,000 followers. They were Twitter celebrities. These are the people you hear all the time on Twitter pontificating and giving their opinion. The articles that they fact-checked prior to COVID, this is interesting, there were 10 reviewers, um, just five of them were on Twitter, and they had roughly a median of 800 followers, which is the piddly amount of followers that academics tend to have. They don't tend to have lots of followers because many academics are not on Twitter. And to prove that, I just went to Johns Hopkins University website. I went to the epidemiology website. I looked at 10 epidemiologists there, and I found, lo and behold, only three out of 10 had a Twitter account. And of them, they had about 800 followers. So what's my point? If you were making a set of all the qualified researchers and epidemiologists who could review Marty Macri's article, 
it's really surprising that the reviewers you keep getting have 42,000 average followers on Twitter. It's almost as if you're looking on Twitter to find who will review the article. Well, why would you do that? Well, obviously you do that if you don't like Marty Macri's article. Marty Macri says you can relax restrictions. So why don't I go on Twitter and find three people who I know won't like that conclusion? They don't want to relax restrictions, so maybe they can fact check Marty Macri's article. And lo and behold, they do that. And of course, they find it's misleading. Does Marty get a chance to respond? Is there an appeals process? How do they even pick Marty Macri's article in the first place? Why are they focusing on Marty and this opinion article? The answer is, we don't know. It's not transparent. Nobody knows. And I certainly know that Marty doesn't get an appeal, which is like all good fair justice systems. The verdict is given and there is no appeal process. Um, you know, I wrote my concerns up for a blog and MedPage today. There's been some pushback from, lo and behold, uh, some of the people who pal around together <laughs> as part of this click on Twitter. Um, the Twitter users they're getting are people who are like-minded. They have a similar worldview of how to combat SARS-CoV-2. Um, it's not surprising that they didn't like Marty's article. And it's not surprising they don't like my article drawing attention to this absurd kangaroo court. What do they say to me? Um, one argument was that these are in fact the best and most qualified scientists. I think that's absurd on the face of it. How can the most uh, qualified scientists to review SARS-CoV-2 claims all be on Twitter averaging 42,000 followers? The truth is there aren't. And proof of that is you can just go to an epidemiology website and pick random epidemiology faculty and you will not find use of Twitter on par with this. They're picking these people because they're well known to the fact checker. So the fact checking website has people who have certain opinions about SARS-CoV-2. Um, Somebody told me that I didn't prove causality. I didn't prove that they were picking them because they were on Twitter broadcasting their opinions. Yeah, um, when you talk about data sets of 20, you don't prove causality with a statistical test. If you want to prove causality, then fork over the emails from this company and we'll investigate it like a legal case. That's how you prove causality with such a, such a group. You don't prove causality from a science standpoint. You prove causality from a what did human beings say when they chose these reviewers standpoint. Um, I accused this of being sort of a, a groupthink. Um, isn't it don't isn't it good enough that the people who have a certain worldview of SARS-CoV-2 they dominate the mainstream media, they control the New York Times articles content, they they fall in lockstep with that. Do they also have to make a third-party website that crushes any opinion, any opinion article that's outside of what they deem fit for consumption? Um, this is totally groupthink, and. If you want proof of groupthink, in January, when I wrote my article that after vaccination, you can hang out with your loved one, many people pounced on me. They said I was guilty of misinformation. Yesterday, the CDC said that's the guidance of the land. <laughs> How does that happen? We go from misinformation to CDC guidance in five weeks, and people think we still ought to be in the censoring business? But the thing that really gets me about this is the people who don't think there's a problem with this, those who are participating in this kangaroo court, they criticized my tweets on the topic, of course, by screenshotting my tweets so no one can actually read my article. Because of course, let's not let the audience read both sides of the issue and decide, let's decide it for them. Of course they think that they're the people who are censoring the articles on Twitter. Some people push back on me and they say, this isn't censoring because you can still read the article. Well. I don't know, would you like to walk around with a label on your forehead that said misleading? That's quite a bold move. It's quite an unprecedented move. I've been on Facebook. I've seen what they post. 
I've seen so much garbage. I've never seen Facebook stamp people, especially professors at a university who published in a national newspaper with misleading. I think it's, it's ridiculous. So I don't know what to say. This is a real, a real crisis. It's a really important issue. Why is it important? When we want to discuss science issues where it is not set in stone, there's not a consensus, and different professors may have different worldviews of policy trade-offs that are very complex of what might happen in the future, um, we have to have a forum where they can discuss it and have a dialogue. And for whatever reason, which I disagree with, but Facebook has become the town square. They're a monopoly. I would prefer to break them up, but they are, for better or worse, the single place where most people are going to spend their time. And for many Americans, they're the place where they're consuming news. So if you want to use the massive power of this corporation to label someone's opinion article as misleading, you need to have a fair and just process. You can't just randomly pick articles that you saw somebody tweeted about and they don't like it, then randomly pick reviewers from Twitter who you know don't like Marty, and then condemn him without any appeals process. Is this, are we really having this discussion? This is a kangaroo court. It's an embarrassment. I wouldn't want to participate in such a court and give Facebook the false legitimacy that they are properly adjudicating these facts. Um, Different publication outlets have their own rules for publishing. You don't get to publish in the New England Journal. You don't get to publish in the Wall Street Journal. Um, but when you do, the bar for deeming that content inappropriate or wrong has got to be super high. And this doesn't pass that bar. This is a farce. Um, I, I don't know what to say. And I guess, I guess I'm disappointed all around. I'm disappointed that this is the process they did it. I was, I was mortified to see it. I found it hilarious because uh, the, only thing, the only thing worse than the dumpster fire of Facebook is the group drink of Twitter uh, regulating the dumpster fire of Facebook. That's the only thing I can imagine worse. And I find it um, really bad that there are people who don't acknowledge that there is a difference between a stamp and writing a rebuttal. Um, if you don't see that difference, you probably shouldn't be wielding the stamp, my friend. You should pass that stamp to someone who acknowledges the massive power and responsibility of this, of this role, if we are to allow it. And I don't know if we're supposed to. So those are my thoughts on this topic. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.